We are. We are. We are cultivate. 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 We are cultivate. Listening to Weird Distractions Podcast, a weekly podcast that rotates between true crime, conspiracy theories, paranormal stories, folklore, and a little bit of this and a little bit of that to provide you what most consider a weird distraction from everyday life, including your babysitter from the 80s. They they definitely think this is this is a weird distraction. My name is Alex, and as always, I'm joined by my absolutely beautiful Pisces co-host. Christy. And this week we are back talking a shrew crime. But before we dive into the topic, I have some housekeeping to cover and Christy and I have some hard-hitting questions to ask one another. So Christy, do you mind if I do a little bit of housekeeping before I ask you what you need a distraction from? Please clean the house. All right. I was joined by the lovely Kevin from the Jury Room podcast for this month's Weird Spam. And just as a gentle reminder of what Weird Spam is, essentially for $5 a month over on Patreon, you can hear either myself, Christy, and I read the weird spam emails that we get in our junk mailbox. It might sound kind of stupid. And to be honest, it kind of is, but that's what makes it hilarious. So if you want to hear this collab that I did with Kevin from the Jury Room podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon for $5 a month USD. And Christy will circle back to Patreon later on in the episode. Now, Christy, what do you need a distraction from this week? I am cranky and sleepy and between my middle round of night shifts, and I am not a happy camper when I'm on nights. So I need distraction from my no sleep and constant hunger. <laughs> That's about it. So you're just a bucket of sunshine today <laughs> is what you're telling me. <laughs> As always, yes. And Alex, what are you distracting from? Um, so I'm going to get a little bit personal up in here because I guess this is our podcast and we can do that question mark. I don't know what the rules are anymore. Podcasting is a free for all these days. Let's be real. So I need a distraction from the fact that I just recently moved my Dan into a retirement home. Luckily, it's nearby, so I can go visit her. But it was a bit of an ordeal and it was really sad. And so I need to literally talk and do and think about anything else just to kind of distract myself from that situation. She's, she, I think she's doing well so far. Um, knock on hypothetical wood, but uh, yeah, it was, it's tough. It is tough. We love you long time, friend. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I think with that out of the way, now that I've bared my soul to however many people are subscribed to our podcast, I think it's time for us to chat a true crime case. What do you say? Please. I love all the drama. All the drama for your mama. So this week, we're going to keep things somewhat local geographically wise to Christy and I and discuss a pretty shocking murder case that took place within Bruce County in Ontario. This murder case has it all. A missing person a budding romance, betrayal, and a shocking twist. With that, we'll be discussing the disappearance and potential murder of Helen Kendall and how her husband, James Arthur Kendall, was once the prime suspect. Slash, I believe he was the only suspect. Mm, I don't think I've heard of this one. Neither did I. And then I don't know. I... Okay, I do know how I stumbled upon it. So basically, I was trying to find a true crime case to talk about this week. Mm -hmm. And... 
I don't know. I stumbled upon basically a PDF of everybody in Canada who has been sentenced to death. <laughs> and bada bing, bada boom, I found this case. So, so go the most darkest route possible and then filter from there. Okay. Yeah, my Google search history is concerning. Whoever is keeping tabs on me should be concerned. The FBI thinks you're a serial killer. Probably. I wouldn't be surprised at this rate. With that being said, listener discretion is always advised. Let's move on. So now usually with a disappearance case, obviously we'd like to start off by discussing the individual who went missing. Like we want to shine more of a, a focused light on them as opposed to any suspects or anything like that, right? Mm-hmm. Let me guess, you couldn't find details. Absolutely not. Mm, and I hate, that. I hate it. And I search and I don't know if it's because maybe I don't have access to certain websites that maybe I should. I don't know. But with that being said, if anyone that is listening, maybe from Bruce County area or just in general, wants to reach out and give me some more information. So maybe we can circle back to Helen and who she was a little bit more. Greatly appreciated. With that said, our story will start with Helen's husband, James, who I believe sometimes went by his middle name, Arthur. James's story started back on February 23rd, 1910, when he was reportedly born into a farming family in Elma Township in Ontario, Canada. Being born on February 23rd makes James a Pisces just like Christy. And according to an NBC Boston article, Pisces are one of four zodiac signs that account for almost 40% of serial killers. I was just going to say that. I'm like, ooh, Pisces is like, we kill us, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) Not me, but apparently he is. But I'm more likely, apparently. That's something a Pisces would say. Mm. (laughs) Do you really know me? Mm. (laughs) If you don't see an episode release from Weird Distractions after today's episode, please call 911. (laughs) Be concerned for Alex, though. (laughs) (laughs) Be concerned. And I guess I should mention the other three Zodiac signs that account for 40% of serial killers are Cancers, Scorpios, and Sagittarii. I don't know what the plural enunciation of that is, but... Oh, really? I thought Virgos were common. That's what I kind of thought, too. I mean, I'm not surprised by Scorpios, because y'all are feisty as hell, but... And Cancers kind of surprised me, too. Yeah, I'm like, not... I thought it was, I thought it was like Pisces, Virgo, Scorpio, something else. Yeah, I mean, it's not Capricorns. You never see a Capricorn on the list, ever. So Alex is not a killer, by the way. No. Least likely. Too busy. I'm booked and I'm busy. I don't have time for that. And I hate getting dirty. So you never have to worry about this one. That's for sure. Just look up all the details. That's all. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Moving on from that information, by the age of 29, James reportedly married a woman by the name of Helen Cameron, a.k.a. our unfortunate missing persons, which we will get into. Uh, And James and Helen allegedly went on to have a total of five children, one son and four daughters. The marriage between James and Helen isn't really well known publicly, but I will say I did lay my eyes on some information that I will share today. However, take it with a little bit of grain of salt because I only saw it in one place. Mm, I hate that because you want to use detail sometimes. And if you only find it in one place, you're like, is it real? Is it fake? Yeah. Well, and I had such a hard time with this piece of information because, okay, well, 
we'll get into it, but let, let me tell you the information and let me break it down a little bit. So this information is based off of the book by Dale Braun called Practically Perfect, Killers Who Got Away With Murder. I'm going to directly quote what was written by Dale, which as mentioned is pertaining to Helen and James. So quote, when he, being James, spoke of his wife, it was always to tear her down. Once he described her to a neighbor as just a cow, when he married her, he said, Quote, she was supposed to be a virgin, but she was no more a virgin than a 12-year-old cow. End quote. Despite his lack of respect for his spouse, Kendall enjoyed the company of women. End quote. So that is from Dale Braun's book. And what are your thoughts, Christy? Excuse me, a 12-year-old cow? That's fucking rude. The audacity. Just the audacity. Bold italicized underlined. I don't... How do you, how do you call on your wife a, a cow? And who cares if she's a virgin? No one. M- No, and mind you, we are talking about a different time in society, but regardless of what time it is, it's still not okay. No. Yeah, and as mentioned, I did only see this in one place, being that from the previously mentioned book online. I did, when I saw this quote, there were a couple of uh, not-so-great book reviews under it as well. So, for example, there was one person, I, I you can't see the username, but... Basically, they're like, you're talking about my dad without my permission, and my legal team is going to hear from you. So that's why I was a little bit hesitant, but it also, Mm. it kind of could connect to what eventually comes out in the storyline that we do know. So to shift and discuss a little bit more about the Kendall family, from what I gather, James maintained an income as a laborer and a farmer, but at one point would work at a sawmill and later as a carpenter, which we will eventually discuss further in detail later on. The family would go on to live in the Moncton area, which for those listening, this is a small village within Perth County in Ontario, Canada, and it's approximately two hours west of Toronto. Jumping to sometime early on in 1952, the family would experience some tragedy. A fire reportedly destroyed the Kendall family home and farm, and unfortunately I'm not sure to what the cause of the fire was. All we know is that in 1952, there was a fire. And the fire, for lack of a better term, fucked up everything up. Mm. Like, seems suspicious or just fuck shit up? Fuck shit up. I don't know if there was any suspicion. Like, there was nothing publicly stated as suspicious. It could have just been an accident, which I'm kind of leaning more towards, too, because if it, if there was some suspicion, you'd think that there would be publications about saying, you know, the fire department thought X, Y, Z, and, you know, the, like, there'd be something pointing to it being suspicious. Yes, yes, yes. What we can speculate on, though is that the fire more than likely led to some financial hardship. As I read that around this time, James ended up taking a temporary job at a sawmill north from where the family was living. James would allegedly reside in a one-room cabin, and unfortunately, all that is described regarding Helen and the kids around this time was that they were living on the farm still. So I think they were living on the property. I don't know in what shape or form, but question mark, shrug of the shoulders, no idea. Eventually, though, eventually the family would go on and join James at the cabin sometime in the summer of 1952. I don't know per se if it was in the one-bedroom cabin, if they rented another cabin or what, but the family eventually resides together for the summer in 1952. There's information out there, but it's a little not super detailed. 
spotty or sorts. Yeah, and I like to paint a visual picture for people listening. And it's really hard to do it with this case. Let's just put it that way. But yeah, we get the gist of it. They were together at some point. Yes, they were together. So this cabin was, I believe, located in Johnston's Harbor, which is over two hours north of Moncton and located south of Tobamori. For those not residing in Ontario and seeking further geographical clarification, Tobamori is approximately three hours and 40-ish minutes northwest of Toronto. And it is absolutely beautiful. Would recommend, however, be warned, it is a tourist location. Yeah, beautiful, but too fucking busy. It's always busy. And now they basically, you basically have to rent time or book time to go there. It's, it's silly. Mm hmm. Is you got book parking? It's just crazy. It's just crazy. So the family is together for the summer, and I think at some point they go back to the Moncton property. I'm assuming maybe the house got fixed up, the farm got fixed up. This is literally pure speculation. I have no idea. But the reason why I think this is because of what reportedly took place between July 31st and August 3rd of 1952 that we know of. So on August 3rd, James reportedly connected with the Ontario Provincial Police, aka the OPP, in which he reported that Helen had gone missing from the family home. The OPP reportedly went to the property and interviewed the Kendall family, including the three oldest Kendall children. The oldest of the five children, aka the ones that were reportedly interviewed, were between the ages of 12, 10, and 8. The youngest two children were reportedly five and one and a half years old and therefore not questioned because to be honest, I've never heard of a five-year-old put a a good story together that made sense. It's a little spotty and uh, sometimes they can't comprehend things quite yet. Yeah, and a one and a half year old, absolutely not. They're going to point at a triangle and say it's a circle, probably. So n- no luck getting anything out of that one. They also might not be speaking quite well yet. So ah, yes, mm, true. I also don't know how children work. So take take what I'm saying with a very very small <laughs> grain of salt. Each of the three eldest Kendall children, according to the Clinton News Record article, told the same story. Their mother, Helen, had simply walked away from their home on July 31st, claiming she was not coming back. Even though each report from the children matched up, the OPP allegedly weren't overly content with the storyline. To them, they just were kind of like, so she just left? Then why is her husband claiming she's missing? Do you know what I mean? It was kind of... I don't know. Like, were their stories rehearsed or like, yeah, it seems suspicious. Seems very sus, right? So it gets worse when James is interviewed. So James had first claimed that Helen had left him for another man. And then all of a sudden James is like, oh, no, no, no. She just went to go live with her mom. So then OPP allegedly called Helen's relatives. They're like, hey, James is saying that Helen's living with her mom. We just want to clear the air. What's going on? And as far as my understanding, all of her relatives were like, no, Mm -mm. haven't seen her, haven't heard from her. She's not living with her mom something's not right here. So that doesn't really make James look like the best person. No, and he keeps changing his story. Like either she went to the mom's or she's missing or she left on her own will. Like, yeah, that's it. It was almost as if Helen had just kind of like disappeared into thin air with the Kendall family members claiming that she had simply walked out of the family home vowing to not return, which now that I'm saying my notes out loud, it's interesting that if that's the story that the kids were saying, then why was James calling OPP. And we might get into it. I'm just kind of putting this thought process out there. But why would you call the police and say, oh, my wife is missing when your children are saying she dead ass said she's not coming home? Mm-hmm. It's very sus. 
extremely. Fast forwarding to 1953, Helen's brother Ross had reportedly joined an OPP investigator as there was a potential lead that Helen may be in Detroit, and being Detroit, like Michigan, as in over the border. Unfortunately, this was a dead end, as it was determined it was not Helen. Mm, and what made them think that? Just a sighting of sorts? Basically, yeah. I, I, I'm assuming it was probably on the lines of, oh, someone thinks they saw Helen in Detroit, so then they went to Detroit, and they might have, I don't know, maybe seen the person that they thought was Helen, and they're like, that's not Helen. Her name's Patrice. <laughs> get your shit figured out. Yeah, get your, get your eyes checked. That's not Helen. Unfortunately, this means that that lead was not good. And that led to the case getting cold, which we hate. We don't like to see cases getting cold because once a case gets cold, sometimes it becomes a little bit of a challenge to try and bring it back to life, right? Meanwhile, James and his kids continue to move forward with their lives, presumably the best they could given the fact that Helen, once again, disappeared into thin air, apparently. I believe James and the kids moved back to Elma Township, perhaps near Listable specifically, which is where we're introduced to the next person in our story. Being a woman by the name of B. Beatrice Haug. Beatrice was a mother of six who, according to the Clinton News Record article by David Yates, was widowed by her first husband in 1937 and remarried in 1938. And I completely forgot that her name was Beatrice, so when I mentioned Beatrice earlier, that was totally random. Didn't even... I was saying, I was like, oh, quite, quite the name drop. And I was like, yeah. you just said before. <laughs> I... Something, sometimes magical things happen when we record, aka I forget all my notes until I actually put my eyes back on them. So, uh, you know, Beatrice, Patrice, sure. Yeah. Tomato, tomato. But basically, this Beatrice woman is waiting for James and his kids, along with her kids, at the family house. Or not the family house, but where James had grown up and was born, if that makes sense. I'm, I'm confused. Why is she already waiting there? So... Patrice and James had known each other prior to James moving the family back to Alma Township and prior to Helen's disappearance. Sources claim that the two met while James was working at the sawmill in Johnston's Harbor. So the two of them met while he was up north working at the sawmill. So as mentioned, James moves his family to Alma Township and supposedly Beatrice was at the home waiting for him, freshly divorced from her second husband, and had her children ready to move in with the Kendalls. Well, that's us and the fact that they knew each other from before is this an affair did you kill her to go with beatrice tapping my nose because something is a muck here and you're on to it so the now described blended family of 11 which could you imagine grocery bills okay the groceries for myself alone are like a travesty and that's like cheaper by the dozen bullshit going on it is it is honestly i can't even fathom groceries for two grown adults let alone Two adults plus way too many children. I mean, no shade to people who have big families like that, but that's a lot of mouths to feed. And it makes me stressed out thinking of how much those grocery bills cost. Yeah, all the power to you and have babies, but uh, that stresses me as a personally. Yes. So the family's all together now. They're in... Elma Township. And despite everything that had happened with Helen, it sounds as though the family was getting along. Like, they were trying the best they could, I guess, given the circumstances. We imagine his kids moving home with him, and then they just see this random family there, and then they all live together now, and probably his kids are like, the fuck? Yeah, and 
we will kind of touch upon that because part of me, and this is based on what I read, like obviously I don't know these people personally by any means, shape, or form, but part of me thinks that they weren't really given a choice. And there is a couple statements later on, which I'll obviously share with you all, that kind of make me think that way. So that might answer your, your statement or confirm what you're saying. Oh, yeah, or, like I'm thinking, I'm thinking they're forced. So yeah. I'm just thinking they're like, oh, new siblings? Cool. <laughs> Question mark? <laughs> What's good, Papa Bear? What are we doing? Who's this? The fuck? Because that's how I would respond. If my mom went missing, and first of all, if I was a child, and my mom just went missing one day, and mm. then I moved to where my dad was raised or what have you, into this new house with a new woman who already has six children herself. And dad's like, hey, we're a new family. Kendall's 2.0. I wouldn't be super thrilled unless I was oh. unless I was kind of pushed into it. And no, I wouldn't be happy regardless, even if I was pushed into it. Yeah, miserable is how I would be. So around this time is when James also started working as a carpenter for the Canadian Forces Base in Clinton, and where he, along with Beatrice and all their children, moved to the Bayfield area, about an hour west from where they were living prior to. So they move to kind of where he grew up in Elma County, or Elma Township. Then they move to Bayfield, which... For those listening, this is just another weird piece of information that probably will mean nothing to you, especially if you're not from Ontario, but Bayfield is absolutely gorgeous. If you have the opportunity to go, would recommend. It's a little beach town, a bunch of little cute cottages, beautiful downtown core, and 10 out of 10 would recommend. I feel like if you live in Ontario, it's like there's Toronto and all the cities, and then any other place around the water is all beach cottage towns, and that's it. Oh, yeah. It's all... It's all beach cottage town and it's all beautiful. And then where Christy mm-hmm. and I are from, it's in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> there's that. So, uh, furthering the timeline of events, in 1959, Helen was officially declared deceased. Even though there was no, like, her body was never found, there was no further movement in the case from what I gathered. Basically, at this point, by law, she was declared deceased, which, I mean, happens, right? We've seen cases before where people who have gone missing for so many years, eventually, I think the well, family is just accepted. And they're like, they're yeah. probably dead. They're not back yet or coming exactly. back. But this meant that James and Beatrice could legally wed with the exception that obviously if Helen came back from her mom's, even though no one saw her there. But regardless, if Helen was alive and she came back in the picture... James and Beatrice's wedding would be basically scrapped because till death do you part, sweetie, right? So it's interesting, to say the least. I assume that no one expected Helen to return and questions along with rumors started to spread as to what actually had happened to Helen. Little did the community know that come January of 1961, a new storyline would come to the forefront about what potentially happened to Helen back in 1952. So as mentioned earlier, from my understanding, the newly blended Kendall family seemed to fairly well with no publicly stated documentation to suggest otherwise. That would change, though, come January of 1961 between one of James's daughters, Anne, and Patrice. The two reportedly got into a verbal disagreement in which it seemed to have led to the then 17-year-old Anne Kendall's relationship with Beatrice to deteriorate. Anne was supposedly asked to leave the Bayfield family home, so things were pretty, I'm gonna say pretty intense for her to be asked to leave. This then leads a very good question to ask, 
what was Anne going to do? Where was she going to go? I mean, she's, she's 17. Going, she's not yeah, an adult yet. Exactly. So Anne decided to go to the police as she had a secret that she had been reportedly sitting on for about nine years, a secret that she could no longer contain. I'm very intrigued. So Anne goes to police and explains that she knew what really happened to her mother back in 1952. And it was far from what she and her other two siblings had told investigators originally. Anne was then interviewed by OPP inspector Harold Graham, in which she, along with the other two siblings, Margaret and James Jr., had informed Inspector Graham about a very different story than the one they had told back when they were children. So according to the three Kendall kids, they were woken up in the early hours of August 2nd, 1952, to the sound of their mother allegedly crying out, Arthur, please don't along with don't art, which when I first read that, I was like, don't art, like don't paint, but art short for Arthur. Arthur. Yeah. 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 I'm in it. All people terms. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So uh, in a direct quote from the Clinton news record to paint the terrifying scene further. Quote, terrified, Margaret Kendall remembered her parents' rule that children were not to get out of bed until they were called. She covered her younger sister's mouth to keep her from crying out. Anne and James Jr. saw their father lay a bloody knife on the kitchen table later that morning. James Arthur Kendall then dragged Helen's lifeless body out of the cabin and down the road. About an hour later, he returned and wiped the blood from the knife and the floor. He then gathered up the bedsheets and Helen's clothes and left the cabin happen again end quote he's a cold blooded killer that's basically what the story is pointing out right like that's some intense stuff and that's why earlier on when it came to the whole you know statements about him calling potentially calling helen a cow and all of this and about the whole beatrice storyline it all kind of paints a picture that to me seems like their relationship wasn't maybe the best but it's also hard to say because we don't have full evidence to say yes or no right but this is now what the kids are saying so everything previous that i had mentioned kind of makes this equation make sense right Mm -hmm. and the fact that i'm just curious why it took like i know she just got kicked out of the house but why it took them so long to say you know it's their dad and they didn't want to kill themselves obviously or get killed well but yeah just to keep a secret for so long it's like he killed your mom well, yeah, and I think that's a very conflicting, I, I, like, I wouldn't know what to do in that situation. Like, if one of my parents killed the other and I knew about it, I wouldn't know how to re- react, especially depending on what the situation was. And no. from what I gathered, the children, like all of them, I think were terrified to make a statement against their father because not only did they potentially walk, I don't want to say walk in on, but he he sounded like a very intense man. That's the that's the best way I'm gonna describe him because you don't you don't do what they said that he did and you're you know calm, cool, and collective, right? Oh yeah, like he a sociopath probably. Well, not only that, but just a very scary individual, which you know, sociopath, psychopath, any mm-hmm. of the paths. Not great. No good pass. <laughs> no good pass. And not only that, but the, the kids were probably traumatized too. I mean, the older ones were old enough to kind of put two and two together and probably figure out what was going on. And any kind of response in relation to that is out of trauma, right? Wait, so like then one was five and one was like yeah. one and a half. Like the baby probably had no idea what's going on. But then as yeah. a girl probably discussed it and said like, this is a story. This is what we're sticking to. 
Well, and even like the 12 year old, the 10 year old and the eight year old, they probably put two and two together and realize like mom's hurt. She's not coming back and dad might have had something to do with it. So if we don't want to end up like mom, we have Mm -hmm. to keep our mouths shut, basically. We. Yeah. So after that morning, the children basically lived in probable constant fear of their father and kept what they saw a secret due to said fear. I recall seeing in some sources that James Jr. feared leaving his siblings alone because James Jr. was the only son or the only brother uh, in the Kendall family of five. And basically, he was terrified to leave his sisters alone with their father. So in referencing the Clinton News record article and direct quote, when asked why he waited so long to tell the police, James Kendall Jr., the oldest son, convincingly testified that if I had given a statement to police, I'd have been kicked out of the house and not be able to watch over and protect my younger sisters, end quote. Yeah, you don't know like what it was like back then, but they could have been split mm-hmm. up on foster care yeah. homes or whatever because there's so many of them just themselves that you don't want to yeah, not see them and well, care for them. Yeah, and you hear a lot of stories of, you know, children staying in abusive homes or teens staying in abusive homes because of younger siblings and because of the foster system, right? Like they don't want to get split up by children's aid or by protection workers or anything like that and then have to try and relocate them years down the road or never know what happened to them, right? Mm-hmm. Like if yeah. one if one kid, you know, says something about the parent, the parent might just completely snap and who knows what would happen, right? So I, I, I totally understand where... James and the others are coming from. It's just, it's one of those situations where it sucks no matter which way you spin it, right? Because you have a traumatic situation unfolding in front of the children, and now they're kind of engulfed in this scenario where they probably can't even talk amongst themselves about it and fear that their dad might retaliate. Yeah, they just stuck to one story and they kind of just want to stick together, basically. Yeah, so despite the fear, nine years was far too long for the children, and the kids probably had enough playing off as if they weren't put through a devastating event for the sake of a man who just potentially destroyed their family. So on January 27th, 1961, James Sr. would be arrested for the murder by officials while he was driving to the Clinton base for work. Since the murder took place within Bruce County, James would be held in custody at the Walkerton Jailhouse. And for visual reference, Walkerton is within Bruce County and is south of Tobamori and northeast of Bay field and fun fact i used to play hockey in walkerton so it all circles back to being really close to home without even realizing this even happened until i started doing these notes good old hockey days Good old hockey days. So when informed of the arrest of her husband, Beatrice reportedly was described as shocked, referring to James as a gentleman and not someone capable of harming anyone, which I feel like is such, like I said, that's so generic. It's always like, oh, he would never hurt a fly, you know, or they would never hurt anybody. They, they That's not like the middle. And in some cases, people are really shocked. But when I read that, I was like, of course, Beatrice would say that. <laughs> And did, did she know about it potentially? Like, is she in on it? Did she's like, she's like, oh, I knew the wife died, but I don't care. We're going to get married anyways. Yeah. Or is she just being like completely naive? I don't know. It, it, well, and it's hard to say. Unfortunately, we don't, I don't know. I, I, I wish I had an answer, but I got to shrug my shoulders on this one. I didn't see anything stating otherwise. So according to the Clinton News Record article, James's charges were the first murder charges within Bruce County in over 15 years. On top of that, it would also be a very pivotal case in Ontario criminal history as Helen's body had still not been located and James did not disclose where it was. Presumably, he maintained his innocence throughout. So basically, without further seeing it in my research, James maintained that he was innocent he probably said that she 
went missing and that was that. That makes me angry. What a piece of shit. Well, yeah, because if he did it, you know, why not say where she is? And that's what kind of angers me about cases where, you know... You don't say where the body is. Like, just yeah. give closure. Just give closure. It's, I wonder if it's a control thing for killers, right? Because they can take that information with them to the grave and they might get off on that, right? They might get off on the fact that they have that information that everybody wants, but they are the only ones that have it. Yeah, it can be just one more like little sick game they're playing. They're like, you killed them and no one knows that. And now they do because like, I know where they are potentially and I can keep that with me at all times. And I can stew on it and play with that and yeah. about it. And if you're out, then you can potentially visit it and whatever else yep. gross things people do. Exactly. So during the trial, the prosecution team probably felt as though they were fighting a battle on a weak foundation. I say that because, as stated, Helen's body had not yet been found, which is a crucial part of, like, any murder trial. But in terms of evidence, supposedly the Johnston's harbor cabin had been examined, in which there were traces of human blood in described large quantities detected. DNA testing was not a thing, though, at this time, so that's kind of frustrating. It's hard to determine whether or not it was Helen's is what I'm getting at. They did find blood, but from my understanding through the research, I don't think they were able to test it and say, yes, this was Helen's. I mean, this is, mm. you know, the 60s. So, and again, that makes me so frustrated. It's like things do get found down the road, but it's like the technology wasn't there. And it's never, yeah, it was there for so long. Yep. The oldest Kendall children were asked to testify against their father and reiterate the new series of events, presumably dismissing the prior testimonies they gave back in 1952. Some listening may see this as a risky move and perhaps not solid enough to convince a jury. I mean, you see this in a lot of different court cases, whether it's, you know, criminal or federal or whatever the situation may be, where if someone goes back on a previous statement without saying, oh, I was coerced or, you know, whatever the reason might be, it doesn't always necessarily look great when they say, oh, what I said before wasn't credible or that wasn't true or I'm changing my story. It doesn't look credible. No, anytime you change a story, it looks suspicious and you're like, are you actually telling the truth this time or not? Despite all that was against them and the case against James, the eldest three children's testimonies reportedly moved the jury. After having some time to mull over the testimonies and the evidence that they the prosecution team did have, the jury came back and reportedly found James Arthur Kendall guilty of first-degree murder in 1961. Apparently, this would be the first case in Ontario where someone was convicted for a murder despite not having a body. So in terms of punishment, the jury supposedly recommended clemency. Despite being recommended for clemency, James was reportedly sentenced to be hanged in the Walker Jail on January 23rd of 1962. James's death sentence would be delayed and would lead to more twists in the case. James would apparently receive stays of his death sentence, firstly on February 14th and then again on April 17th, 1962. On March 26, 1962, there was an appeal for an acquittal for James's sentence, basically due to the change of the children's statements, along with other evidence that perhaps James did not receive a fair trial. To explain further, I'm going to directly reference the appeal document of Kendall versus the Queen, which I found on the Supreme Court of Canada website, which the link will be in today's show notes if you want to take a peek yourself. Here is the quote. It is a long one, so hold on tight because we're going to read all of it. Okay. 
quote, the contradiction between what the children said in 1952 and what they said in 1961 raised a serious question of credibility. This was clearly and adequately put to the jury on evidence that the children were under fear and intimidation. They never discussed what they had seen among themselves and never mentioned it to any outside person until 1961. The jury was fully seized of this matter and there could be no attack on the judge's instruction on this ground. The substantial attack on the children's evidence was that the trial judge failed in his duty to warn the jury as to the care with which such evidence should be weighed. The argument is that the evidence of the children given when they were grown up suffers from the same fertility which would have attached to it had they given their evidence as children and that it could not be any stronger when given in 1961 than it would have been if given in 1952. So kind of summarize that because that's a lot of words I just kind of spewed out to everybody. Not only were they attacking that the children's testimonies changed from the original ones that they provided nine years earlier, but the appeal also highlights that the judge supposedly referred to the previous testimonies coming from children, which is true. However, in the appeal, it basically argues that the children were, quote, testifying as mature persons to what they had observed as children. So basically, if what they saw was in fact what they claimed, i.e. that their mother just walked out on July 31st, then that should have been taken as fact. On top of that, the appeal argued that the judge supposedly lacked the ability to explain capital murder and non-capital murder, aka first degree versus secondary murder, to the jury. So basically just the appeal's nitpicking a lot of things is kind of what I'm gathering. Yeah, like who cares? Like they said what they said as kids because they were terrified potentially. That was the reason why they gave that statement. Now they changed it because they're older and they're like, fuck you, dad, you killed our mom. Yeah. And who cares? Yeah, who cares? It's, it is what it is now. <laughs> Hot take from Christy. Who, who cares? cares? <laughs> who cares? And I also kind of wonder, and I don't, I didn't really see this in my research at all. And if it is out there, you know, if someone wants to correct me, that's fine. But I wonder if there wasn't maybe enough evidence that James Arthur had, like, I don't know, intimidated the children when they were growing up, or if he was an abusive father, whether it was verbally, emotionally, physically, or what have you. Basically, what the appeal is arguing is that, well, if they were so in fear of their father, where's the evidence to back that up? Like, where's the proof that he was such an awful man and was scary to them, basically, or was intimidating them to act a certain kind of way? Like, where is, basically, where's the proof in that, right? Which, on one hand, it's like, okay, I get that. But on the other hand, it's like, they're, they were children. They and were children, and it couldn't may not necessarily be physical proof. It could yeah. be that they were just mentally abused, abused, and manipulated. And you can't yeah. prove that. That's just yeah. That was just his attitude and his behavior, and he literally they saw him kill his mom potentially right in front of them. Yeah, like how mental how, mental trauma. Mental, well, yeah, emotional, psychological trauma. And you could argue that a lot of things happen behind closed doors and you're not always going to get the evidence in public, right? Like how many, I don't even know what the statistics are at the top of my head because I haven't looked, but abuse happens every single day in a lot of different homes where on the outside looking in, everything looks perfect. But through the rose-colored glasses of life, there's a lot more behind the scenes that we don't know. So who's to say that the intimidation and everything was or wasn't happening? You know, it, it's hard. It's hard to say. And like I said, I, I get both sides. I get where, you know, you could argue and say, well, there's no proof that he was intimidating to the children. But you can also say that he was. Unfortunately, we just don't know. Yeah, they can say they were. They can say they can't or weren't. There's no right or wrong. It's just yeah. no proof. 
Exactly. So this appeal moves us to April 10th, where apparently the governor general had commuted James's sentence to life in prison instead of the previous death sentence. James's life sentence was to be completed at the Kingston Penitentiary in 1962. James went stay long in Kingston, though, in referencing the Clinton News Record article again, by June of 1977, i.e. about 15 years after his sentencing changed, James was granted full parole. In that Clinton News Record article, it stated that he was granted parole from the Agassiz Correctional Work Camp in British Columbia, which I apologize if I butchered that. I don't, it's A-G-A-Z-Z-I-Z, so Agassiz, Agassiz? I don't know, who knows? Shrugging my shoulders. I tried to Google it and not much came up so i don't know <laughs> it is what it is it is what but it I'm is i'm flabbergasted he got parole like what full parole not even as far as my understanding i don't think he had to do probation i didn't see anything you know in regards to you know having to seek treatment nothing so basically it's like acquitted is what it sounds like like basically. there's parole there's conditions if it's not that then there's no conditions so i don't know if he was transferred to bc from kingston i don't know why he would have been I, that seems like a really far transfer to me and i only saw this whole you know he was released from British Columbia in that Clinton news record and that was kind of it like there wasn't a lot of information about him out there so who is to say but regardless James would have been approximately 67 years old at the time of his release I tried to look him up on the find a grave website however was unable to find literally anything I'm going to speculate Wally that he is more than likely not kicking around in 2022 as if he was he'd be 112 years old yeah 112 is kind of pushing it I do see 100 from day to day which is very surprising but not 112 mm -hmm. yeah no definitely not 112 and unfortunately here comes more bad news there's nothing out there in terms of post-conviction life for james listed and nothing more in terms of any new or recent searches for Helen or her body. So to kind of summarize this case as listeners may have guessed it Helen's body has never been located to this day. I basically, I literally just said that. So yeah, just to kind of reemphasize the depressing part of this entire case, Helen has still not been found at all. Which is very sad. Exactly. There have been supposed theories that if James did murder Helen, because he was convicted of murder, however, some could argue that because there was no body and blah, 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 that he might not have. I don't know. I'm not going to say yes or no, because I'm going to let the listeners come up with their own conclusion. But there are theories that if James did, in fact, murder Helen, he may have disposed of Helen's body in Lake Skagog or near the Crane River, which are both in Ontario. Some also kind of theorize that perhaps Helen did simply walk out. But based on the testimonies of her children and the reports that Helen's family members and friends were like, yeah, we haven't heard from her. We haven't seen her. You know, to me, it just kind of screams as if something more nefarious kind of happened. But at the end of the day, they're all just theories. And it's been a long 70 years of just theories and no justice for Helen. Hopefully Helen can receive some form of justice without waiting another 70 years. And I hope that the Kendall children, along with the family and friends of Helen, can also get some justice and peace after this tragic situation. Now, usually with missing persons cases, there would be a specific page stating which police detachment you could contact and whatnot regarding submitting a tip. However, when it comes to Helen's disappearance, there isn't one. So what we will recommend 
is that if anyone listening has a tip or any information regarding the disappearance of Helen Kendall at me, Helen Cameron, to practice the following steps courtesy of the Canada's Missing website. So you can contact directly the Investigating Police Service. So this would be, I want to say, Bruce County OPP. Contact Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477 or at their website, which will be in today's show notes. Or you can contact the National Center of Missing Persons and unidentified remains at canismissing-disparisCanada at rcmp-grc.gc.ca. So if anyone knew Helen and wants to share more information about her specifically, i.e. like what her date of birth is, like I couldn't even find that online, which was kind of sad. Whenever there's not that much information about a victim or someone that's gone missing, it's like that information might be able to help, I don't know, lead to something. And, you know, some people might argue, well, maybe she did go missing and maybe she doesn't want to be found but what if that's not the case and what if what if something bad happened and it's just a matter of getting that one piece of information what i was gonna say before i went on a a small tangent was if anyone has information about helen who she was feel free to email us so we can have a better understanding of who she was and kind of focus more of a light on her as opposed to uh, james arthur kendall and that is this week's true crime case i have a question um i know it was later back when did they ever go back and test that blood that they collected that they couldn't get like dna from as far as my understanding no I didn't see anything like it almost seems as if because James was convicted, everything just kind of stopped. Like I have not, there's no recent information about a search party going out. There's no information about DNA being tested. I mean, it's hard to say. And I will like, I will kind of add on to that. I know the police situation in our area being Gray and Bruce counties has had issues with funding and staffing and all of that stuff. So I don't know if maybe that has something to do with it, or maybe there's a bunch of missing persons cases that are just backlogged. But to answer your question, simply no. Which Okay, I understand that if it was he was convicted, but then he was convicted, then he let him go for parole. If yep. you're going to let him go for parole, I would have made, made sure it was clear that that wasn't really what it was. Well, yeah, and it's interesting that nobody else kind of came forward and said, like, hey, why is no one, you know, like in the 90s or like the early uh, 2000s, like, why did no one say, hey, remember that piece of wood from Johnson's Harbor from that Kendall case? Like, why don't we test that and see whose blood that is? Because what if it wasn't Helen's blood? What if it was somebody else's blood? And that could solve another unsolved murder situation, right? Like, Mm -hmm. it's just a bunch of loose ends that I don't appreciate. I think is the best term to put it. I don't like it. I don't appreciate it. And I'm not here for it. No, yeah. Stuff wasn't done. And then, yeah, like you said, there's no details online about Helen at all. And you're like, no, she was an, she was an important person. And it seemed yeah. like you were just like caring about everything else but her in the case. Yeah. And I, I know a lot of people, especially when it comes to, to um, people that specifically listen to true crime podcasts, a big critique is, you know, there are shows out there that don't hyper-focus on the victims. They just focus on, you know, the serial killers, the Ted Bundys, the Jeffrey Dahmers, and, you know, they don't focus on the victims. And as people in the true crime podcast scene, I guess, you know, we're going on almost two years of the show. I I think we can say that now. Uh, You know, I I want us to focus more on the victims but it's hard when there is no information out there like hell i can't even tell you when her birthday was and to me that's important you should know when someone's birthday was or is absolutely yeah but now i must tell you my resources and i hey if this case interests you if you're listening definitely check these resources out so shout out to the clinton news 
record article. This is where I got most of my information. And the title of that article is Huron Man was sentenced to hang for killing his first wife by David Yates on March 3rd, 2022. The NBC Boston article, which Zodiac signs have the most serial killers by Rob Michelson on October 28th, 2021, has no relation to the case of Helen, but that was just a little piece of information that I had to look up because, you know, Pisces. <laughs> Thank you to the Supreme Court of Canada it was basically like a PDF article that I found, um, which that was for the Kendall versus the Queen page. Uh, thank you to Wikipedia for Moncton, Ontario. Very important for the for the episode. Thank you to the Bruce Peninsula Press for their 2015 number 11 series. Thank you to the Practically Perfect Killers Who Got Away With Murder, dot, 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 for a wild book, which once again take that information with a grain of salt but that was by dale braun on july 6 2013 thank you to champions of the dead opp crime fighters seeking proof of the truth book by andrew f maximchuk on november 18th 2014 and last but absolutely not least thank you to the canada's missing website and all of these resources will be in today's episode notes so check that out now christy it is your time to shine can you tell our lovely listeners how they can support the show where they can tell their friends to listen and all of that amazing information that you say at the end of every episode yes again thank you to all our lovely listeners you can find our show on many platforms as always if on apple Podcasts, spotify google Podcasts, good pod pod chaser and more if you guys are listening on apple Podcasts or good pods Please consider leaving your rating or review if you can. And on Spotify, you can also just leave a five-star rating. This just helps to get more attention to our little show. Um, another way to support our show, we have our different media platforms. We have Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. And if you're wanting some more weird distractions and want to support our show more show financially, consider joining our two tiers of Patreon. Both tiers currently get early access. You get ad-free episodes. You get monthly bonus episodes. And you can find out more about this by going on patreon.com slash podcast other ways to kind of help out the show and you're not able to subscribe for a monthly fee over on patreon that's no problem you can financially support and still do something for us and get yourself on Redbubble. you can find some of our merch designs available on sweaters notebooks t-shirts pretty much anything at this point you can search it just head over to Redbubble's website and look up our distractions podcast you guys can also always as i say make a one-time donation on buy me a coffee which is just another little sprinkle of monetization and the link is in our social media bios lastly as always we are looking for our listeners to kind of send in some stories. We're collecting your weird tales of true crime, paranormal encounters, and any other experience you might think that was just basically weird. We released two Lesser Distraction episodes, and we'd love to hear more from you guys to keep the series going. So you can email us at weirddistractionspodcast.outlook.com. Make sure you guys let us know if you want us to keep your name or make it anonymous. You can do either. It doesn't matter. And also, you can always email us any corrections that need to be made after today's current episode. Yes. Thank you so much, Christy. And... I completely gapped out, but you're going to be taking a break from the show for a little bit. Just here and there. Yeah. yeah. So Christy, just a heads up, you will be hearing a couple of guests come on the show. Christy is working her little booty off. So I have basically told her she needs to take a break from the show. <laughs> basically, our schedules don't coincide this month. <laughs> yes. So you will be seeing a couple of guests on the show, but have no fear. Christy is still a part of your distractions. Christy's not leaving. Don't worry about it. If, if anything changes, we will let you know. But yeah, you will, you will see. <laughs> don't fret. <laughs> yeah, don't fret. You will see guests come on the show. And for those that do enjoy our true crime episodes, you might want to keep your eyes peeled on our feed because we've got a couple of true crime episodes coming back to back to back to back so stay tuned and as always if you need 
a distraction. We got you. Bye. Bye. everybody, I'm Amber. And I'm Maddie. And, and we're, we're Witches Talking, Talking Tarot. Tarot. And we've brought you a show all about the occult. We're talking different lores and mythology. Yes, creature features, cryptids, aliens, you name it, we'll cover it. Conspiracy theories. Absolutely. And pagan holidays and 100%. Practices. All eight of them. Yes. Spiritual living, you yeah. name it. That's right. We've got it for you. So if you want, come sit with us for a spell and let us make you laugh. We are witches talking tarot. Thanks, everybody.